Second lesson is from the Gospel of Luke. It's printed there in your liturgy. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and and when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it's been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May the same spirit that led and sustained Jesus in the wilderness now be the one who teaches us and leads us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, on this first Sunday of Lent, we meet Jesus in the wilderness doing battle with the evil one. The imagery is rich. 40 days is the time frame, and that number 40, together with that landscape of the wilderness, the desert, evokes quite deliberately another time and another place the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness after God delivered them from enslavement in Egypt before they were given the gift of entering the promised land, Canaan. The wandering years of Israel were a time of trial and a result of their lack of dependence on God. The encounter between Jesus and Satan also, of course, brings to mind another time when Satan speaks directly to human beings And I'm, of course, referring to the story of the temptation in the garden where the line of questioning is eerily and sickeningly similar to the line of questioning that Jesus has here where the serpent says to Eve, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden, question mark. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Of course, we know the rest of the story. Adam's and Eve's fall from grace because of a lack of dependence upon God's good gifts. Israel's refusal to depend on God just a few minutes after God had freed them from slavery 
in Egypt just a few minutes after that, and they quit depending on God. And there's the 40 days in the wilderness for them. All of that is in view here as we contemplate how Jesus begins his ministry. The human condition is what's in view. The temptation that each of us has to not depend on God's good gifts and take matters into our own hands, to short-circuit the path to real relationships, all of that's in view here. As we contemplate how Jesus begins his ministry, he's gone out, led by the Spirit, to fast and to pray, to prepare for a mission that will result in salvation for humankind and our world, but to prepare for a mission that will entail great suffering and the embrace of a way of life that is cross-shaped from the beginning. Isn't it likely that Jesus is thinking not only of his own hunger, but the hunger of the poor all over the world when Satan tempts him to turn stones into bread? Isn't it likely that Jesus is thinking of the great injustices of the Roman Empire and the need that all people have to be ruled by just rule when Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world? Jesus has gone out to pray, to fast, to prepare for a mission that will bring about a new kingdom where power is always in the service of love, where compassion is on display always and the poor are lifted up. But this kingdom that Jesus is going to bring about will come in the shape of a cross through the hard slog of investing in real relationships, through being rejected by many, and through experiencing great suffering and betrayal. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring about comes through the real stuff of life, a cross-shaped life from beginning to end. And Satan comes early, and questions that plan. Offering instantaneous gratification, so to speak. Offering more that will, of course, be radically less. Offering an easy route that would actually be a road to nowhere. Offering gifts that turn out to be fake. Offering splendor that is an illusion. In reflecting on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Rowan Williams remarks that, and I quote, Satan preferred an unreal world where he was in charge to a real world in which all the glory was due God. It is not a bad definition of the essence of evil. And it means that there is no goodness that is not bodily, realistic, and local. 
Perhaps this is the key to understanding the temptation of Jesus to worship Satan in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. It's not as though Satan owns the kingdoms of the world so that he's able to dispose of them. All the temptations of Jesus seem to be about resorting to magic instead of working with the fabric of the real world. Jesus performs miracles in his ministry, and of course he does, but never as a substitute for the hard material work of changing how people see God, and never as a substitute for the bodily cost of love, which reaches its climax on the cross. Satan wants Jesus to join him in the world where cause and effect don't matter, the world of magic. And Jesus refuses, determined to stay in the desert with its hunger and boredom, to stay in the human world with its conflict and risk. He refuses to compel and manipulate people into faith because it can only be the act of a person, and persons do not live in the world of magic. End quote. Friends, as we begin Lent together, I invite you to reflect along with me on the plethora of temptations the spirit of our age offers us that are false approaches to human goodness, false approaches to human flourishing. So many of these temptations sneak up on us in the mundane slog of everyday life. I'm all for quality time. I think it makes sense, right? But sometimes we imagine that quality time is enough to build our relationships to the point that we've missed the hours of time that need to be logged in order to notice that our children or our friends need help in certain very subtle but important ways. I was thinking about that recently uh, when I was invited uh, uh, by a certain child to play a board game. I don't like board games. <laughs> and uh, I thought, this is not about the board game. This is about logging the time. Logging the time to notice the subtleties, to notice where the love needs to come in, where the love maybe isn't coming in. We can, you know, fill in the blank with any friendship you can think of or whatnot. You know, time spent uh, in the real world, in the, in the world where you might bump up against something uncomfortable, uh, that's where you see the holiness of God. Or perhaps we have become so afraid of the vulnerability that's required to build true intimacy that we're tempted to accept false intimacy instead. That perhaps is one of the great temptations of the spirit of our age today. With false intimacy offers supposedly on demand and supposed well actually on demand but but, but supposedly uh, anonymous and whatnot it, it's just out there for all of us to wrestle with and then there's the temptation to see evil in the other 
rather than seeing that the healing of the world will come only through our acknowledgement of our own role in the problems of the world. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote last century in the Gulag Archipelago, I quote, If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of the world, or from the rest of us, and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Building on that, let me put it this way. The healing of the world will come not through the politics of demonizing others, pretending that our side is the side of the righteous. The healing of the world will come by taking the log out of our own eyes rather than focusing on the speck in another's so that we might then get about the business of cruciform love, enemy love, loving one's neighbor as oneself. What I'm suggesting is that for any of us to flourish as God intends for us to in this world, it will require us to look honestly at our actual lives, not our fantasy lives, at how we actually are, not how we project ourselves to others, and to lean on God more deeply than we have before to show us where we need his help to battle certain temptations. But to take that sort of look at oneself requires a great deal of confidence. Confidence that something can be done about what one sees. And that is where the gospel comes in. And that is where the deeper meaning of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness comes in. The struggle with Satan that Jesus undergoes in the wilderness is just as much for you and me as his death on the cross. Jesus succeeds in depending on God where we have failed so that whenever we open our hearts in despair to Jesus, we can count on him being right there to help. Our union with Christ that we're invited to to live into here each week at this table, our union with Christ is not simply a union with his death on our behalf, but it is a union with his life lived on our behalf. And in the wilderness, you are there. Israel is there. Adam and Eve are there. As Jesus recapitulates the human project, succeeding where each and every one of us fail so that he might give us his life and his obedience and his acceptance and his forgiveness and his power when we struggle with temptation, not something to be wrested from him with our good intentions, something to be received from him in gift. 
The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. When we take that look at ourselves as we actually are, not as those people that we project our fantasy selves, we do have the boldness to do it because something not only can be done about who we are, something has been done about who we are. The gift of Jesus' faithfulness is a gift to each and every one of you and to me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.